from the first stirrings of life beneath water to the great beasts of the Stone Age, to Vouter and Dan on Civcast. Welcome. I kind of I've been wanting to do that one for like four or five weeks now, Vouter, <laughs> and it's, it's a little cheesy. And I told you to prepare for it, but <laughs> I think it works. I, I think so. I think so. It's the one. I think that quote is like. You know, it's branded onto my memory, as most of the start of game quotes are from the Civ series. But hey, it's okay, because it's a good quote. Um, <laughs> welcome, folks. Thank you for joining us again, uh, Civcast. I'm Dan. My co-host is Voucher. Uh, thank you very much for joining us this week, folks, on reddit.com slash r slash Civcast. We had a lot of posts um, this week, a lot of interaction. I guess it probably coincides with some of the changes uh, that the game brought about with the spring patch. That's fantastic. We were happy to see that. Today, uh, we are going, and today is, we record on Monday, so it's Monday, May 14th. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a couple things. Um, we're going to talk about, obviously, the spring update uh, and some of the changes, good and bad. And there are definitely some circumstantial changes uh, that are very noticeable in games uh, that we've played up to this point. We're going to talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about the report back, which this week was Alexander the Great at Macedon on a domination play. And it was fun, and it was more overpowered than I think I realized it would be when I went into it. Um, so I had a fun game, and I know you did, and it looked like a bunch of people who shared their experiences on the report back did as well. We'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more in-depth on strategy. We'll talk about uh, one thing which I'm curious about, too, a little bit of a surprise segment, which we'll get a little later on in the episode. Uh, so yeah, how are, how are you doing, sir? How is your, well, I guess it's Monday. So I was about to say, how's your week, but it kind of just started, didn't it? Yeah, my week just started. My weekend was uh, pretty fun. I had uh, some fun uh, things, some parties, some, uh, good laughs and such like that. So yeah, I had a good weekend. How was yours? It was good. It was Mother's Day here in North America. I was just saying to you off, uh, off camera or off camera, Christ, off microphone here. It was, uh, it was my wife's first, uh, first mother's day as a mother. So, you know, I, I spoiled, well, my son and I spoiled her. We, uh, we teamed up to buy her a few nice things and make her breakfast and everything. And he may only be eight months old, but he can really cook a mean pan of bacon. So I was really proud of him for that. So yeah, it was fun. It was, it was a fun weekend. Um, I didn't actually get to play much Civ this weekend, but I played most of my game. Uh, at the start of last week, which is good. So, uh, all right, let's kick stuff off. Um, let's kick stuff off by talking about the patch, okay? I think that probably makes uh, the yeah. most sense. We'll get to report back afterwards. Spring patch came out this week. It looks like, unless there's a fundamental mechanic overhaul, it looks like the dev team is trying to roll out patches uh, seasonally. So one every um, four, three or four months, I guess that would be. Um, this is the spring patch. There were some big changes, some big overhauls to uh, government types. Uh, a few unique units received buffs, a few received debuffs. A few civs that we talked about being OP definitely got the nerf stick. Um, and a few, yeah, a few governors, obviously, everyone foresaw the, uh, the Magnus nerf coming. But, I mean, it wasn't as bad as I think some people expected. Um, so, Vouter, uh, what would you like to focus on first and foremost out of this patch? Why don't you take it away? 
Uh, I think we should talk a little bit about a couple of balancing changes that have been made. And a couple of interesting ones are some of the unique units uh, that were significantly less used by a lot of people, including me, that Mm -hmm. now might actually be more interesting. I'm talking about the Norwegian Berserker, which got its production cost reduced by 20 from 180 to 160. And its combat strength buff, when attacking, increased from plus 7 to plus 10. And a combat Mm -hmm. strength debuff... Uh, from defending from minus seven to minus five. So that overall is actually pretty good. Um, cheaper to produce and better in combat. So is the Japanese Samurai, also the same production cost reduction. And the combat strength went from 45 to 48. And the Georgian Kefsur uh, production cost reduced as well, the same. And combat strength decreased from 40 to 45. So... In a game like like we have now in Civilization where plus five combat strength can make a big difference if you win a war or not, these extra buffs uh, accompanied with a production uh, cost reduction is actually really good. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would be using them. They're still in bad places in the tech tree, which is mm-hmm. always going to be a problem for me because military tactics is just not a tech that I tend to get in most of my games. Unless mm-hmm. I want to buy, like, a uh, build the wonder that you get from there as well, the Hitakali. Um, mm-hmm. but th- this actually makes me some, like, especially in the Norwegian Berserker, the combat strength buff upping it to plus 10, combining it with, uh, the new system that you can get, uh, in Rise of All that once you completed, uh, the government building from that era, you get, like, um, the legacy bonus from that car as a card as well. Uh, from that uh, government side that you had when you built the building. So with that, if you were ha- being an, uh, what is it called, an oligarchy, will mm-hmm. land melee, anti-cavalry and units get a plus four combat strength. Uh, right. Combining that with a legacy card, you get plus eight combat strength. Combining that with like a Norwegian Berserker, you get a lot of combat strength in, on the offensive and you can push through hard. Um I think the Norwegian Berserker came out best in this way. The the combat strength debuff is then pretty much negated by your policy card, and you have a really tough, uh, powerful unit um, that is now also a little bit cheaper to produce. So yeah, I think the Norwegian Berserker is really powerful. So Norway um, is a sieve that we've talked about in the past. Is is it definitely needed some love? I mean, it was a lower tier sieve. Um, their abilities, the sieve abilities, and Harold Hadrada's leader ability are both underwhelming. And before the Berserker, yeah, it didn't really feel like it, it a substantial unit to me. So these buffs, I think, as you're saying, make it significant. But I've always really liked the Samurai um, as a unit. I, I remember at not the first game, I think the second game I played a Civ 6 was in Japan. First game I played a Civ, Civ 5 way back when, I remember, was with Japan. Um, I just kind of always like how they position the Japanese Civ. And admittedly, in Civ 6, they kind of seem um, a bit lost and a bit without a place. But the Samurai are just, they're, they're fantastic units. I mean, the fa- I just love the fact that they don't suffer their combat penalties when damaged. And the fact that now they go up in melee strength and become... I believe one of, you know, proportional to um, era and everything, probably one of the strongest unique units now, right? Is that fair to say? I think so. They, they are really powerful. And especially with the fact that they don't suffer from uh, the problems with uh, being wounded and stuff like that can make them last longer. Um, it, it's just the problem. I love the the Samurai in Civ 5. They were amazing and I used them yeah. a lot. And I, I remember one game that I had 
um, I believe I was playing uh, the Vox Populi mod as well, that I was playing on deity level and I was being overwhelmed by the Ottomans, but I knew I was going to be fine because I prepared my army to upgrade to Summarize because I was a couple of turns away from unlocking that. And I just completely obliterated the Ottoman after that because I got my right. Samurai. And I believe I was streaming that game or playing it on YouTube and I got one of the comments on it like, that's the biggest turnaround I've ever seen in a game because the <laughs> Samurai were just so freaking powerful and just blasted yeah. away the enemy. And I yeah. feel, and that's what I want from like a unique unit. Like they need to be the dominant force perhaps in that era. And I don't get that feeling from the samurai here. They're just a little bit too little of it. And and, and once again, the, their place in the tech tree does make that harder for them. Yeah, that's fair. They need to be difference makers, I think. And when we get into talking about Mastodon, we could definitely talk about how their unique units are different ma- difference makers. And the ones, you know, we talked in the past about how with Nubia, the Patati archers seem outstanding. The Kevsers um, with Georgia were a unit we were both kind of underwhelmed with, though. Um, and they got a buff this week. So they'll be interesting to see in-game. Um, 40 yeah. to 45 on base combat strength makes them at least viable. Um, because I remember from our Georgia game that I like the fact that they don't suffer any sort of penalty, um, movement penalty specific to hills. Um, but they definitely were underwhelming. So we'll have to see in a game. Uh, I'm not likely to play Georgia in the near future, but we'll have to see if I come up against her if I notice them. Um, medieval era, though, it's. I feel the medieval era is always so crowded. I feel like unique units from the early game still just stand out so much in this game. And that, I mean, again, from the Alexander play this week, which we'll get into, that's um, probably obvious. But um, moving on from the unique units, and I agree, the unique units are really important here. Um, there was a there was a sieve that we've talked about in the past that we haven't done a report back. Was, okay, three sieves got um, <laughs> ability ability buffs or, or uh, nerfs. I think they're actually all nerfs across the board here now that I think about it. Well, I don't know if the kind of the Britain one was a buff or a nerf, but we'll talk about the Korea. Britain first. one is a buff, actually. It's a buff. Okay, good. I have to look back at the notes then here. Oh, yeah, it is a buff. Yeah, for sure. Um, the Korea one. Uh, this, I felt when I was looking at it that if you played late enough into a governor's tree, that it could be somewhat of a buff percentage wise. But then you made the argument that that's you know, unlikely to happen and that out of the gate, it's going to be a very obvious nerf, and it is. Because in the past, you got uh, 10% culture and science for any governor, regardless of promotions. And now you get, uh, with the Huarang ability, governors established in a city provide plus 3% culture and science for promotion they've earned, including the first. So m- mathematically, um, it could go above, obviously, the 10%, you know, three times four, for instance. But you see this as a pretty fundamental nerf factor, right? Yeah, um, you don't have enough government titles to give away to get all your cities at the same level. And that was yeah. my strategy when I was playing Korea. I just built seven cities. Have uh, I believe there are seven uh, governors, or am I miscounting yeah. now? No, there are seven. Uh, there are seven, yeah. And... Um, Seven cities, get a governor in each, and just go science-heavy on them. Um, especially in the beginning of the game, that just made a huge difference. Right now, if I want to do like the same kind of thing, then um, all my cities will have less. And if I just focus on the biggest city, then still the, the numbers wouldn't add up. I will make less science uh, than I did before. 
And mm-hmm. especially since in the beginning of the game, if you snowball, it will have more benefits later on in the game. Um, in the beginning, you will now have a slower start of your science and culture, which will lead to less yields later on. So this mm-hmm. is definitely a nerf, which was fair. I mean, Korea was really on a runaway train with their uh, science. Yeah, no, I mean, I saw games posted on the Civ Reddit that were people winning science victories um like in 95 ad and stuff like that and that's just absolute insanity so yeah i think you know much like in civ 5 i think that they are far and away the runaway train for science and it makes sense to balance them a little bit um there were some policy uh and kind of on the side changes uh to science as well which we'll talk about in a sec um so with the britain change uh pax britannica Ability now additionally awards a free melee class unit when constructing a Royal Navy dockyard in a city founded on a foreign continent. That'll just be a nice little um, defensive addition, I guess, when you build that city that you'll get. Uh, is it? I, I would assume that this is a melee class li- unit that's proportional to the area you're in, so they're not going to give you one that's the moment it spawns irrelevant, right? No, it's literally uh, based upon what, what your melee class you have unlocked. Okay, good, perfect. Um, and that's obviously um, a nice, not even like a quality of life buff, it's just a nice little addition and it'll help you stave off any sort of you know early aggression when you found on a new continent. And then with probably the Civ that needs the most love in the game right now, uh, Lautaro and Mapuche, the ability Swift Hawk has been updated to have an additional effect. Pillaging an enemy city plot now causes the city to lose five loyalty. Um, do you see any? I mean, I, I do you see any situational advantage to this, or anything that would be helpful for this? Obviously, I could think of a situation where it would be helpful, but would you, in the way you play them, find this helpful? Not really. Um, the, one of the bigger problems, also with his ability, is that once a city loses its loyalty, it doesn't become yours. It just becomes a free city. Yeah. So. What you then do is take away a city from an enemy and give it to like this wildcard force that you mm-hmm. have to conquer as well. Um, mm-hmm. It's easier usually, but y- you don't automatically get there. Um, then you need to start pillaging land and killing units of that free city to get a revolution. And then you just hope that you have enough pressure around there to have that city flip to you instead of towards your enemy. Um, yeah. It's it, It's just not... Uh, maybe it's not my game style. Maybe that's why I don't like it. But I, I don't think this is a an addition that I would be like, oh yeah, this actually makes things better. This is like, nope. To me, this doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything to them for me either. I mean, I, again, situation I could see a maybe a an approach or a style or a, a niche where this would be beneficial. But I mean, I've, I've only played them once, and I admittedly didn't play very deep into the game style. But they're still pretty underwhelming to me. Um, I wanted to talk, if we could, about the government balances, and we had a good laugh about this <laughs> off mic as well, because as I'm sure you guys have noted, uh, and this is this is funny, you know, I have a bit of a, in my head, I always have a bit of guilt, certainly when I, when I get late game and I pick fascism as my government type, no matter who I'm playing or what I'm playing, this, you know, historian in me in the back of my mind is always like, <laughs> really? Is that, is that what you're doing? Um, and now I guess it's even more viable because... You know, Paraxis decided to make fascism great. Uh, I'm not going to add the last part of that acronym to it. Um, they increase the combat strength, base combat strength from four to five, which will be, I think, hugely beneficial. Um, and the bonus unit production from 20% to 50%. 
this is ob- an obvious buff and this makes it um, even more viable for when you're maybe when you're playing those big sprawling map games where you're running uh, a domination play really late into the game or you're playing um, on a, I don't know, an immortal or a deity level difficulty and having a really good pitched battle with someone long term. This makes sense because, I mean, there's admittedly, there's not, it's not every game that you actually get to this, you know, part of the tree. Um, but in instances where you do, I could see this as being beneficial. And then communism also got a buff. Um, production per population goes from uh, 0.4 to 0.6, and the overall production bonus from 10% to 15%. Whereas democracy, unfortunately, folks aren't imitating life here, I guess, because uh, democracy is suffering in this game now. Uh, the production per district for democracy is nerfed from two to one. Uh, so overall, Vouter, provided you don't have the, you know, the moral objection to going with fascism <laughs> or communism as your government type, uh, what are your thoughts for uh, these buffs and nerfs here across the board? Uh, the thing is, since Rise and Fall, uh, before Rise and Fall, I pretty much always went with Communism for the production boost. Um, since Rise and Fall was out, I w- tended to go to Democracy because it gave me the production boost that I wanted, the discount on purchases with gold, and I like the cards better. Uh, it has an extra wild card slot, an extra diplomacy slot. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with this, I tend to lean towards if I'm not doing like a domination thingy or something like that like with Alexander I went fascism in the end Mm -hmm. Um, I I, I think communism has it for me at the moment um, as long as I don't have too large of an empire because usually I will have enough governors in every city so that I can uh, in my my cities that I get that 0.6 production per citizen because yeah. it's only in governors. The plus 15% production flat is always great. So, yeah. yeah, usually that will just be enough for me to go with communism again right now. Yeah, that's fair. And that's the direction I point in as well. And I think that it's a smart buff and it absolutely makes it, you know, head and shoulders above the other two. But, you know, I'm curious, situationally, this buff to uh, to fascism is is significant and oh yeah what is it what is a situation where you might um because you know and again it's not just because of moralistic objections i'm not some bleeding heart here but i mean i just didn't see it as being beneficial in the past you know when you go up against the two production-based uh cards there so what's the situation now where you might go in the direction of fascism um for this era uh, see it this way: if you get fascism with uh, legacy card as well, that's a plus one hundred percent production towards units. Combine it mm. with a policy card that even buffs unit production even more. You can push mm. out units like crazy, and uh, the plus five combat strength for all units itself already is really really powerful. Um, it makes it hard for non-fascist nations to go up against you. Um, yeah units and uh, combat wise so if you want to do a domination in the later game then fascism is the way to go yeah absolutely and it, and it appears that way and pound for pound it's, it's the way to go i think if if you're playing these bigger sprawling games where yeah you're getting into uh significant skirmishes and conflicts with other civs so that would that would make a lot of sense to me to go in that direction and i like i like what they've done here with these um buffs and the democracy nerf, I guess, is, I mean, it's significant. Look, production per district from two to one, if you are relying on, you know, stacking districts and such to get that production bonus, um, this is going to hurt you. But I think this kind of brings all three of them in line with one another with communism 
perhaps peaking above the others right now. So that makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, they're, they're pretty much well-balanced right now. Communism has it for me personally, um, but I might as well go for democracy because I like the card placement better on it. Uh, fascism is very clearly where it's dedicated to, and beyond that, it doesn't have much of a purpose. But between yeah. communism and democracy, you can have a big discussion, which is better, and it, it's very situational and depending on what you want to do. Nice. Good stuff. Um, a couple more policy uh, rebalances, um, as well as the governor balance. Well, we'll talk about the governor balances first, actually, I think, because it makes sense, too. Um, Pingala's librarian ability uh, now provides plus 15% science and culture in the city, uh, was plus 20%. So this is a nerf. Um, and it's definitely one that you're going to notice. Pingala was, um, in my science plays, obviously the go-to there. So this will hurt a little bit. Um, but the one that everyone's talking about is um, the Magnus ability reduction from 100% to 50%. And from a pure statistics point of view, um, that is obviously significant, slashed in half. But interestingly enough, Valter, you said off mic that you think that this might not hurt as much or maybe more along the lines of you said that it wasn't as much of a nerf as you thought it would be. No, I thought that actually might be a little bit more, uh, especially by the way that people have been like using the exploit that we talked about before. Um, mm. That is still viable. It just gives you a little bit less yield out of it. Um, and therefore, I think, well, it's still really powerful and, and, and strong and good, especially in the beginning of the game. Just chop some wood for your capital to get you started and going and everything like that. Um, with the production overflow, the way it still works... Yeah, no, this is this is uh, less of a nerve than I anticipated. So still still viable, not obviously OP or exploitable anymore, but still definitely something that people are going to rely on. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so too. Just, I mean, when you look at percentages of the other things in history, it still makes sense. Um, policy rebalance, uh, military research gives plus two science from um, military academies, seaports, and renaissance walls was plus one. So that's... Um, uh, situational science-based bonus for if you're playing more of, I guess, an insulated game. And it did uh, with, include the Renaissance walls, which is important because now every city sure. that has Renaissance walls actually will contribute science, which is a huge upgrade because you will have more cities having the walls than military academies and seaports usually. That's a very good point, yeah. And I think that if you think of a civ that's really geared towards walls, like, uh, I don't know, uh, Georgia, for instance, yeah. this could really help them lean into a science victory. Uh, public transport, gives uh 100 gold per appeal when replacing a farm with a neighborhood was 50 um sure yeah okay i can obviously see obvious it's a stats bonus i can see obvious bonuses to that but i don't know if that's going to affect my play style at all and e-commerce um, which is a late game tech gives uh plus two i'm sorry late game policy gives a uh, plus two production and plus five gold for all your trade routes was plus five and plus ten but only for international trade routes. So a nerf to one extent, but also a balancing of the direction that that yeah, comes it's, from. It's really interesting because last week I talked about that I wanted to go for international trade routes. Now this all e-commerce also does it for your internal trade routes. And that's so interesting. Like yeah. they, they kind of buffed domestic trade routes with this because you can mm -hmm. combine this with the policy that unlocks with, I believe, the communism tech um, that gives you plus four food for your internal trade route. So if you want to just have like a domestic trade route thingy with e-commerce, it actually is viable. Good. That That's good to hear. I mean, I... I definitely know that I've gotten that policy in the past. Um, so this will definitely help that style or that approach to a game. So that makes sense. 
Um, I wanted to talk really quickly. We'll get to the joint wars and the third-party war update. We've got a lot of stuff to cover, so I'm ticking through as fast as I can here. And I know you have a lot to say about the wars, but I did want to mention the historic moments and the fact that they've added a, a bunch of uh, era score, or they've brought in a, a bunch of new era score uh, triggers. Are there any of these that you know you are really loving or any of these that you think that you're more likely to get now or help you in your era score and your, your uh, trek towards Golden Ages? Not specifically... Um, first shipwreck excavate it's like uh, would be like something that I might get um, mm. but beyond that I will never finish a fully developed aerodrome probably uh, an encampment <laughs> actually would be nice uh, it's a nice boost yeah. it will happen every now and then same for entertainment district and water park um, yeah. it, it's not the best um, but there's some nice ones in there it's it's kind of they added some fun ones and some more peaceful ones I guess you could say like the national parks and the yeah. first seaside resorts and you know if you have a plot city with twenty five population which is you know not often that you're going to get that but if you have a city with twenty five pop you're probably not fighting many wars so you know you get era score still from not being aggro now which would be nice um, okay the wars the changes to that I know that you're um, <laughs> big on this so. Do you wanna do you wanna talk about that? Take it away because before we do that, I want to talk about one more balance change, uh, the oh, one that sure. is significant actually, and that sure. is the commandos melee unit promotion. Uh, okay. That that promotion was the one that gave your melee units the ability to scale cliffs, mm-hmm. and now it actually gives you plus one movement as well, which is significant. I usually went down that side of the tree anyway, but found the commandos melee promotion just pretty useless. And now it actually becomes super useful. The plus one movement yeah. on a melee unit is amazing. You over yes. like when we played with um, Nubedia, we had the pl- three movement archers. We saw a huge, huge, huge change compared with the two movement archers. Yes, now having 100%. like three movement uh, melee units is 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 really powerful. Uh, mm. If you look, for example, to the Norwegian Berserker, who already can get like a, a nice movement buff as well by itself, um, you can have really fast moving melee units. Uh, I think this is a huge buff for melee units, and I love it. Good. No, I mean it's it's definitely going to be beneficial, and um, it's just in every situation, it's going to now make that. Um, side of the promotion tree um, much more viable because yeah the the scaling the walls and stuff I, I don't know if I ever um, used that or clicked on that because it's just yeah okay there's I guess specific situations where that would help but they're few and far between yeah um, okay talk about the wars then talk about the, the changes to joint wars and third party war update. yeah players can now ask another player or AI to join wars they're already in which is really really awesome um, so you got declared war upon and your economic ally body on the other side of the world that is for example also neighboring that person who declared war upon you doesn't join the war because you're allies but not really you just have like an, a trade agreement kind of thing like yeah. NAFTA or something like that um, yeah now, because you're so good buddies and everything like that, you can make the alliance a little bit more like real and ask them to join you uh, in the war, which is awesome. And I love it, and I think it was sorely needed as well. Um, this way, you can get some little bit more beef to your alliances and stuff like that. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And I think it adds a bit more realism to the sense of war and to the sense of alliances and unification and joint wars and so forth. And I think it's great. And um, I never really understood why it wasn't there in the first place. I know many situations where I was frustrated by the fact that because I was already in a war, they wouldn't join me after the fact. So that will be helpful. Um, I'm trying to I'm looking at if any of these other uh, joint war update things are worth mentioning leader screens because no i don't really think not really i think yeah okay anything else that you think is significant from here that we might have missed there are obviously some other things miscellaneous i know that religion can now affect the loyalty of a city which might be important if you're worried about city loyalty the fact that yeah um cities get plus three loyalty for following uh your founded religion but minus three of following another player's religion that could that could help or hurt for sure uh, there's um, a bug fix that prevented the Persian immortals from using melee attacks as a default attack. Um, that is pretty useful. I, bl I believe it was a bug that um, made it that you couldn't capture a city with a Persian immortal, uh, which is horrible because that was awesome when you could. Uh, mm -hmm. So they fixed that. that that's nice. Beyond nice. that, I don't think there was anything specific that I wanted to uh, point out. Okay, so good. A lot of things here. Overall, you're satisfied with the update? You're satisfied with what they've done? Um, it's less than I anticipated. Uh, I had hoped for a little bit of more of a buff for Britain after their nerf that they didn't get the extra trade route anymore. Um, but all in all, yeah, it, it's it's okay. That's the best. I, I will. Give. Yeah, that's that's okay. That's fair. I, I yeah, there wasn't as much at least wasn't as much that's direct, directly applicable to the overall mechanics of the game there were some buffs obviously but the one thing i was surprised by don't know if you're surprised by it um is the fact that there's no uh new sieve on the horizon and obviously they rolled out a, a crap ton of them with rise and fall but usually with these updates they dovetail um a new dlc sieve into there or at least yeah you know mention yeah. that one's on the horizon so i did want to briefly before we transition to talk about alexander Talk about whether you think, you know, there is going to be a new sieve on the horizon, maybe into the summer update or something like that, or if we've gotten our fill until at least next year with the expansion. I really hope that they don't uh, stop with releasing some DLC sieve or anything like that. I don't mm -hmm. think they will either. They're, they have obviously like a lot of uh, places they can go with more sieves, and pretty much yeah. everybody is always agreeing more sieves is better. Even if the, if you don't want to buy that specific DLC or whatever, um, you can more have your pick and choose of what kind of sieves you want in your game and everything like that. Um, yeah. I had also expected that this might be accompanied by a uh, DLC sieve or anything like that, and it didn't. And that makes me worried a bit that we indeed have to wait until like a next expansion comes out. And I might, I'm afraid that might take too long, uh, far in between. Like until Rise and Fall, I think they had the DLC pretty okay, but the moment they spaced it out and everything like that. Yeah, but totally. Yeah, I don't know. I really hope it, that they continue with that. But by the looks of it, we might be in a little bit of a dry patch. Yeah, and I understand. On and it, you know, okay, obviously after the game, you know, the DLC between Vanilla and Rise and Fall um, went Poland, then Australia, then um, the Alexander slash Persia release, then Nubia. Then the Khmer Indonesia release, and I think that's everyone, right? Am I missing anyone that was DLC? I think that's all the DLC. I right? think so. I, I don't yeah. remember correctly. 
Yeah, and and that's a lot. And yeah. if you're thinking about it for Firaxis, that made them, I would assume, a lot of, a lot of money. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great money making strategy. So I would be surprised if they waited another year or year and a half or whatever it's going to be to the next expansion to release a DLC sieve or a pair of DLC sieves. I do think we're likely to see fewer. I mean, the the, the having like seven or eight or whatever it was DLC sieves between vanilla and first expansion was was a lot and yeah. you know that was that was significant and i was surprised by that but i was pleased by it and i kept giving them the money for it so it's not as though people are it's not as though people are angered by it right like people want it so i mean yeah i think, I think that they need to consider it i think that there's still a lot of sieves that are maybe not a lot but there's still a few sieves a few fundamental sieves that are missing from the game that they need to roll out like they need the Ottomans in this game. It's silly that they're not in the game. And then there's, you know, a few others they need to consider adding, or maybe even just a few leaders they need to consider adding. Like give us another American leader, or give us another, you know, leader for France or something like that. But yeah, they haven't um, really utilized the, the the ability to place multiple leaders in the same nation. They specifically put yeah. that in. Very thought about that, but then yep. didn't utilize it only. A uh, handful, like I believe, two sieves has it. Greece and India, I think, are the only ones yep. that actually have two choices. So just Greece and India right now. And Greece was the only one at vanilla, and India with the Chandragupta edition, I think, kind of universally has not been super warmly, um, you know, br- uh, embraced by the community. I know I haven't yeah. even played Chandragupta, so I think that's something that's has a lot of potential there. Yeah, absolutely, um, but. Yeah, and it's. I can't imagine that it would it would require a lot from them, and I think people would grasp onto that if you gave us a new American president to play at, or a new um, leader of France, or you know whatever. It doesn't matter. There's a lot of civs you can go for a second leader with, a la Civ Four. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, I wanted to talk about this maybe in a deeper sense. We don't have time today to get really in depth on it because we have to talk about Alexander, but maybe this is worth talking about in the coming weeks if we don't see any announcement but what they might be withholding, why they might be withholding. And I know we have E3 on the horizon. Yeah. So maybe we see something at E3. I mean, North American game devs see E3 as their Oscars, right? So it's their chance to really um, get stuff out there for people to see in a highly visible um, event. So maybe we see something then, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not angry or disappointed by it, but you know, <laughs> let's 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 get something right. Even if it's two or three months out, it's something to look forward to and something that excites people. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, report back this week was Alexander and Macedon, and we had a lot of uh, really cool report back responses from people. Um, I'm going to read theirs first, I think, Voucher, and then we yeah. can maybe hitch our conversation onto it. So I will read um, what Marino shared, and then maybe what Dash Rip shared, and then you can read what. Um, Tamasran shared earlier today. So um, Marino, to paraphrase here, um, abandoned um, his or her early uh, 100 turn game because of the patch coming out. Uh, if fast domination is a goal, I'm quoting here, if fast domination is a goal, don't bother with encampments and the special stable, the Basilicoipitis, it's not worth it. The science boost from building your units there can't compare with the Eurekas and inspirations you get from conquering cities with districts. Very true. Um, in early att- conquering cities with districts, isn't it conquering cities with wonders? Uh, no, if you conquer a city with a theater square or a holy site, you get uh, uh, an uh, inspiration. And if okay. there is a campus or uh, I don't f- I remember the other one, you get a uh, Eureka. And if there are right, both right. of them, you get two. Right. Okay. Good. 
I guess I was mixing those two up. Anyway, in earlier attempts, pre-rise and fall, I usually took, I'm still quoting, I usually took too many cities without districts for this to be useful. The last attempt on deity, that was huge. Timing when capturing cities with wonders is a lot of fun. Imagining the defenders looking at my almost depleted army, thinking they finally get a break, and then going from 10 to 100 in a single turn makes me smile out loud. <laughs> Hitting China is particularly fun. They had three cities with wonders quite early, and that would make sense for China. And without building a single encampment, I still got three generals from the Hetairoi special ability. This, in my opinion, is the second most powerful sieve after Gilgamesh. Definitely overpowered, but great fun. End quote. Second most powerful sieve after Gilgamesh is an interesting way to put it. Um, obviously, I found them super overpowered in my game, but that's that's high praise that I don't necessarily know if I agree with. What are your thoughts on that assessment? I'm not certain if I fully agree with, but they're really powerful, especially in a player's hand. Yeah, good. Um, I'll really quickly share uh, Dash Rips here. Uh, Dash Rip is, uh, thank you for contributing almost on a weekly basis to these, I think. Um, Dash says that he or she uh, never actually played Macedon, but it's clear they have a complete domination focus, not a play style they normally adopt, so it'll be interesting to go for an early domination. Um, and then that was, uh, I think, yesterday. And then today they said, quote, So yeah, Macedon's an early game warmonger. Uh, his heavy cavalry can stomp through most other units in the game, and they're very low cost, means you can pump them out like crazy. And I agree with that, and that's something I was going to observe um, for my game. Rush mercenaries for the cheap upgrade cost to knights, and you still get a very powerful army. That's a good strategy. Something I did not realize was taking a city with a wonder heals all your units, not just ones in the nearby vicinity. This means if you're fighting on two fronts, it completely covers you. And yeah, that's really neat. It's like this yeah. universal hand of God healing buff for your units, even if they're halfway across the map. So that's fantastic. Top tier domination sieve, but it's the only string to Macedon's bow. Solid metaphor. Uh, every other type of victory, they get zero advantage. Final note, the achievement is possible to get by gifting, then taking back your own city with the wonders. Interesting. So yeah. the achievement that uh, Dash is talking about is one that we talked about last week as being just ridiculously situational. Um, let me find it here. Uh, the exact quote on it, right. Uh, greatest is as greatest does. Playing as Macedon, conquer a city containing both the Great Library and Great Lighthouse Wonders. It is the fourth lowest achieved Civ Six achievement. And I can understand why, because, I mean, how many games are you going to be in where that aren't like 1v1 games where the opposite sieve goes great library, great lighthouse. I don't ever really see the AI prioritized. And also in the great. same city as well. True. Yeah, exact. Very good point. So this does have to be a coastal city. They'd have to, you know, obviously the AI prioritizes great library, but do they prioritize great lighthouse? I, um, I don't think they do. Moderately. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, your eyes would go big as saucers if you were looking for this um, ability and you saw a situation. And you have to really keep track, obviously, with the alerts that are telling you of a Civ building wonders. So a lot would go into this. Dash is, I don't want to call it an exploit, but because I don't think it's an exploit. It's just a different way to play the game of gifting a city, which is not something that people would, you know, inherently yeah. go for. Uh, gifting a city where you've built great light library and great lighthouse and then going and reconquering it. Yeah. Okay. That'd probably be the easiest way and the most reliable way to get this achievement, but I'm not sure I would feel as 
accomplished if I did it that way, I guess. Yeah, I'm not one for using that kind of strategy. I mean, it is definitely a way to get it. Uh, 100% true. Um, mm. I just would like to see it happen like organically, and that's probably never going to happen, but it would be so much more satisfying when it does. Yeah, no, I get it. It's, it's, and I can understand why it's one of the lowest in, in the entire uh, achievements catalog, lowest accomplished in the entire yeah. achievements catalog. Um, all right, give my, uh, my breath a break here and uh, share what just today uh, underscore Thomas Ran underscore shared with us on the subreddit. Yeah, first of all, I might be a bit late, but this will be my first interaction with the podcast as more than a lurker, which is always great. I mean, we love our lurkers and we don't want to call them out, but <laughs> it's amazing that when you come out of your shadow and uh, share your your story with us like uh Tasmaran did which is actually really great yeah um thank you so she started off, he or she started off playing as philip ii of macedon which is actually a mod uh made mm-hmm. by uh, jfd and uh his abilities are a little bit different because the trade is of course different than uh alexander has so the trade of Philip II is receives an envoy when retiring a great general. Cost of levying units from city-states is halved and gains mm. the uh, Pesetaurus unique unit when they research the bronze working technology, which is mm. a unique light infantry unit that replaces the spearman when Philip II is the leader. It's stronger than a spearman and generates great general points when promoted. So I like that in mind, uh, they played a little bit of a different game. Um, so they started with Philip and played on immortal, immortal difficulty. And um, they just went out on a fractal map with a lot of mountains uh, in, a, in the middle. And uh, that had a beautiful thing of being a solid natural fortification from which to blossom out of of with with forward settling it kind of almost made me think of uh the 300 story with the 300 uh, spartans sitting in uh the middle of a passage and everything like that it would be yeah i can see that gorgo might be a little upset by that but i could see that yes i was able to <laughs> snag the giant's causeway early which allowed me to form my religion dodecation what the greeks called the 12 higher deities in the pantheon this is somebody who actually knew history apparently because i did not know that yeah, and uh, the Giant's Causeway is always a great thing when you want to do something domination as well the yeah. plus 5 uh, combo bonus is awesome once mm-hmm. I secured a religion I turned outward towards the world braving the unknown by braving the unknown I of course mean sending Macedonian phalanxes headfirst into Khmer and then into the Indonesians quickly subjugating and absorbing them into Macedon's hem- uh, hegemony no, hegemony yes yeah Yes, yeah. Uh, it was the fr- this time that I realized an absolutely stonking amount of fate return co- because of the religious shifts that I conquered, which is true because Indonesia and Khmer usually go nuts with their holy sites. Yeah. I d- decided that the world would know the will of Zeus, Herathene, and Ares and the other gods through the tip of a Macedonian pike. Holy war after holy war. I slowly but surely united my continent to bring the light of Hellenism to the pro- uh, appropriately named Atlantis. From this Macedon emerged into the world stage of the Renaissance, sending entire fleets of apostles and missionaries to the heathen lands, backed by a determined group of settlers that founded a colony to be the spare of gods. There was little heretic and heathen could do, as the tidal wave of missionaries washed over their empires and the people began to worship the Dodecaton, with Philip II and, and the representative of the gods. On a respectable turn 198, 
I achieve religious victory, having brought the light of Hellenism into the world of the gods to the entire world, spreading the true faith at the tip of a Macedonian pike. Overall, it was very different and fun game from what I'm used to, and I would recommend any who do, anyone who doesn't go to war often to try it out. It's intensely rewarding to take down an enemy that stole wonders from you rather than angrily <laughs> glaring at them all game. And I can True. fully agree with that. Thank yeah. you very much for writing up this um, awesome write-up. I loved it. Uh, the story-wise elements of it in there, I always am a sucker for that, those kinds of things. So thank you very much for coming out of the shadows as a lurker, and I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, thank you. And they're, they're, uh, they signed Ayano. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So thank you, Ayano, for sharing that. And Ayano shared, um, the post itself is really neat, but, you know, the, the positive feedback and, and saying that this is, you know, a podcast that you really look forward to and that really helps you individually is, you know, is something that Voucher and I both agree is wonderful. Yeah. And look, we, we do this because, you know, we really enjoy the game and we enjoy hanging out once a week and chatting with each other. But, you know, we don't get anything really beyond just the satisfaction of doing it and hearing stories like that gives us a great deal of satisfaction. So um, thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, the, the, the dedication of the storytelling aside, I think that um, that is a really cool way to play the game too, to focus on this, um, you know, dual religious slash domination victory. But I know in my game, um, religion was on the back burner and it was almost strictly domination based. What about yours, my friend? How well, you said you played two? So I played one post patch and pre patch. Yes, and yeah. um, both of them. Sake, let's talk post. Uh, post patch. I uh, had a little bit more of a uh, quicker game. Uh, pre patch. I it took me until like the late era before I got to uh, victory. But uh, post patch, I actually uh, went. A quite quickly be able to dominate the entire world. I think in the end I had to upgrade some of my units to be musketmen but beyond that uh, everything was conquered already before I actually uh, run out of uh, steam with my hypostasis. I have no clue how to pronounce that. (laughs) Okay. Good. Um, It was was a a pretty nice game. Um, I decided to go immediately from the beginning of the game on an aggressive path. I found London not so far away from where I started and decided to just go and evade London with a lot of warriors. I kept a scout close by and all the warriors that I pre-built in the game uh, were on their way to London, managed to capture a settler or actually two settlers from them and then capture London as well. So that was actually off to a pretty good start. Uh, with England neutralized and gaining the free settlers out of that, I had a pretty uh, awesome beginning empire. And I just decided, well, screw it. I'm just going to build a lot of military units and uh, rushed over to my other neighbor, was Lataro, who wasn't as strong as I anticipated and was able to conquer that as well. Took a couple of city-states along the way because they were just like in the way. I didn't have envoys with them anyway. Might as well conquer them. Um, after that, I just went on a steamroll and just kept destroying one sieve after another until all of them fell. Uh, the next one on the list was because it was close by, unfortunately for you, Dan, uh, the Scottish Empire, Robert de Bruce. <laughs> Okay. He didn't put up much resistance either. And uh, at that point, I just had to 
heave away all my units to the other side of the continent where I took out uh, Germany who had already captured the capital of Arabia so I just had to take out Germany completely and with that won the game. Um, I, I ended up with having a lot of great generals, uh, a couple of musketmen because of the uh, extra movement that they got with the patch upgrade, I didn't feel the need to have much cavalry in my uh, army at all. Uh, because for movement, Musculman, because of the Great General, is more than enough for me, uh, speed-wise and everything like that. And they were absolute beasts, conquering city after city with their two attacks from the promotions they got. Um, yeah, was a very, very easy snowballing game for me. I... Let me check. I played on Immortal difficulty uh, only as well, so it wasn't that high of a difficulty. But yeah, this was way easier than I actually uh, thought it would be. Good. Yeah, I think that's kind of the universal like assessment of this, is that domination, and rightfully so, I mean, Alexander never lost a battle, so it just yeah. would be anachronistic if he was to suck at the domination play in the game. So, you know... Waging long wars, conquering your enemies. I mean, that's that's how I played as well, and it's fun. Like the the hippos hippos hippospist whatever um, is a really <laughs> is a really solid and strong unit. And I like Basilicoipitis. It has a lot of buffs and a lot of bonuses to it. Yeah. Then again, yeah. I am just kind of a sucker for unique infrastructure. But plus one production, plus one housing, plus one citizen slot, plus one great general point per turn, plus twenty five combat experience from melee ranged and hatiroid trained in the city and gain science equal to 25% of the unit's cost when a non-civilian unit is created in this city. So that helps with a little bit of a, you know, a, actually a pretty significant science boost, quite frankly. Um, so I think a Pitus is great, but overall it sounds like, you know, you would probably with that, you know, really outstanding, well, the two pair of outstanding games in mind would probably place them as a top tier domination civ. Oh, definitely. And uh, well, I believe it was uh, Morino uh, said that not building uh, the encampment uh, district. Uh, I usually do build one, also because I just want to build a terracotta army for a free promotion on all my units. And yeah. when you have the encampment, then building the uh, Ballistico Paradis is just one step away. So usually I do that as well. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about it at a later date, but I still think Encampment is one of the most OP districts in the game. Um, and Basilicoia is beneficial. Um, my game, uh, it was, I squared off um, really early on with uh, Poland, who was mad at me for not really focusing on religion, and then <laughs> Indonesia, whose leader agenda I don't remember what. Um, Ooh, good one. I, I don't remember either. Yeah. Indonesia's, or no, sorry, it wasn't Indonesia, it was Khmer. It was Khmer. And I think Khmer has to do with religion as well. Um, if I'm Probably his leader agenda. Yeah, I squared off with them. Uh, the first thing I did actually was I subjugated the two nearby um, city states just because I I pumped out early game um, military and I wanted to use them for something um, and I wanted to wait because Poland was pretty far away um, and Khmer was pretty far away. So I wanted to have like large armies to make sure that I only had to, do, to take them over in one swath. So um, two city-states, one of which was production-based and one of which was science-based. I took them over really quickly. I used them as forward bases to pump out units. I waited a little bit until sort of towards the end of the classical era to really kind of um, double down on my attacks. And the first uh, civ I went for was Poland. I rolled out the 
Um, one policy card that was really beneficial here was the one that gives you a bonus for um, ancient and classical era um, melee and um, anti-cav units. And that one was, uh, I don't remember what it was called, but it was a lifesaver for me. Um, I took Poland out with some challenge, actually. She wasn't messing around. And, you know, she's, I, I find Poland to be a bit of an underappreciated civ. I think that um, she is strong and especially in kind of like the early like the late early to mid game the hussar is i don't think i don't remember seeing any of the hussars that's more of a later game unit but just overall she was strong maybe it was just this game situationally Khmer less so i took over Khmer um pretty easily um and think he only had about two significant cities if i remember and so then i had basically a huge hold on much of the entire south continent um and uh to my north i was playing pangea again to my north i had what appeared to be an alliance between japan and the Cree, and um, both of them were pretty strong bit of a weird alliance quite frankly um <laughs> but both of them were strong in different ways and i sent a bunch of scouts there and they were just completely unhappy with me at all times and then declared war on me um, their joint war against me, not with any emergency attached to it or anything, just a joint war. And I managed to stave them off, and we're talking about mid-medieval era. Um, and then I pushed them back, and they both begged me for peace. Um, and then that's kind of where I left off, because like I said, I didn't uh, get to get to play deep into this one because of uh, a busy weekend and Mother's Day and stuff. So overall, my interaction with them was really positive. I really like the Basilica Epitus, as I said, and I really like the Hypaspist as a unit. Um, domination plays aren't always my style, aren't always my approach, um, even though they're kind of fundamental to the game. Um, but, you know, if I were to pick one um, to do for several games, Macedon would be up there because they're fun. They're fun to do it with. The neat little mini game of the bonuses you get from conquering cities with wonders or districts and the buffs that that gives to the Eurekas and such is really neat. It was really um fulfilling it was really uh it's just i don't know it was just really neat i didn't conquer any cities with any wonders so i didn't get like poland and Khmer didn't have any wonders so i didn't get to uh take advantage of that but altogether really impressive really enjoyable and uh yeah a sieve that obviously i think universally everyone agrees is um it's well worth the time if you're going to play a domination game oh yeah definitely so, in the interest of time, we're kind of we're kind of reaching towards the end here. Um, I think we'll, we'll cut it there. Um, we'll talk about how this week, folks, um, we wanted to do domination again. We're going to do three weeks of domination this week. We're going to do a sieve with that also is I think a top tier domination sieve, but that plays a little differently. Um, and that's Shaka in the Zulu, another rise and fall sieve. So, we're going to uh, post on the Reddit Reddit.com/r/sivcast the uh, report back section for that. Hopefully, maybe you haven't really played an in-depth game of Shaka because they are, as they are in most Civ iterations, a total beast, right, Bowter? I mean, my oh, one yeah. game. It's going to be really interesting to compare how uh, Alexander and Shaka play differently at doing the same kind of thing, um, where Alexander is a little bit more focused on uh, the early game and uh, Shaka comes more into its ride in towards the mid game. So I, I think we're going to see a little bit of a difference in game style, uh, even though you're going for the same objective. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fun. Um the achievement that you're going to be looking for for Shaka, there's one Shaka specific achievement, a steam achievement that's 0.6% accomplished. It's called Ibuto and it's as Shaka train a core of impi using the Akanda district. 
And am I overlooking something that might make this difficult? Or because it doesn't sound difficult to me. The only thing that I can think of, most people will have won by then. <laughs> That's fair, actually. Yeah, and if you haven't won by then, you're probably not gonna win. So you might wanna <laughs> you're doing it wrong. No, it's definitely not a difficult achievement. Okay, good. All right. So that will be one that I think folks will probably be able to report back with positivity on. Um all right. Uh, good stuff. Uh, we we buzzed through that, but we kind of had to. Um, let's get to our segments here, and then we'll call it a day. So, Vouter, uh, your strategic tip for the folks for the week, please. So, since I've been playing as Macedon quite a lot, and we're now going to go with Shaka, I want to address something that happened with the Rise and Fall expansion, if you want to conquer other civilization, and that is, has to do with loyalty. Uh, loyalty can become actually a problem, which I love as a system in this way. When you're conquering another city, you don't automatically have them loyal to you. There's a large chance they will actually become disloyal and turn into a free city again, which you then have to reconquer again, which will only cause precious population so you want to make sure that you can actually manage the loyalty of the cities that you conquer and to do that you should actually look out which cities you conquer first beforehand i just went to what was natural in my path and everything like that but uh, a thing that gives a lot of loyalty towards your civilization a lot of uh, loyalty towards another civilization is population so actually the thing that i tend to do now is not take the like smaller cities on the outskirts but actually dash for one of the bigger cities uh in an empire so from there i can then easily take the smaller cities that i normally would start with because they're usually weaker defended don't have the necessary walls up and everything like that and I don't have a problem with loyalty of those small cities breaking away after two or three turns. Another thing that I can, I always do is put, uh, some, uh, governor in there. Um, the governor, the Castellan, I believe he is called, um, it has only an establishment time of three turns. Uh, and the normal time is five turns. So that makes a big difference. Get that governor in there for a little bit of your loyalty spread out amongst there. If you're playing a religion with this past update now as well, you can get more loyalty from a city by having your religion there present as well. There are also some policies that help with loyalty to uh, if you have a unit garrisoned in there and Shaka that we're going to play as now a city that's garrisoned with a unit gets plus three extra loyalty per turn so for Shaka it will be even easier but those are some ways that you can stave off uh, cities that you've just conquered and want to break away immediately from your empire again usually it will be easy to reconquer them but it will just waste precious resources that you want to spend on something else that's it for today nice yeah good thank you my friend that's fantastic a um, couple quick facts about Alexander the Great. Everyone knows plenty about Alexander the Great. They know that he's he never lost a battle. They know that you know he became this amazing general at the age of historians argue sixteen or seventeen, and that by twenty three he conquered the known world and fifteen years of conquest and all these different things. Everyone knows those. But my favorite stories about Alexander always kind of pertain to his childhood and then his death, which is still shrouded in mystery to this day. So most people know that um, Alexander's father, which is Philip II of Macedon, uh, that Ayano played their game with with the mod, 
um, hired Aristotle, the famous philosopher Aristotle, to educate uh, Alexander at the age of 13. And there's not a lot of documentation about this, obviously. There's not a lot of documentation about the time in general. Um, but, you know, obviously a lot of what Aristotle said to him sunk in. And there's a lot of instances of um, Alexander saying things or acting in a way that demonstrated an enlightened leader. Someone who was anachronistic for the time when you had leaders who, when they would conquer other cities, would just kill everybody. And, you know, while conquering, Alexander would kill everybody. But there's stories of, you know, when conquering a city, Alexander not doing that and seeking to win the will of the people through peaceful means or through, you know, some method of kindness or something like that. So, you know, Aristotle had a big influence on him. But funny enough, there were other philosophers whom Alexander interacted with. And my favorite story is when he interacted with the famous cynical philosopher Diogenes. And Diogenes is uh, not obviously as well known as Aristotle, but if you studied philosophy, you probably know Diogenes as one who was a little bit less, well, he's, I mean, he's known as the cynic. So you can kind of tell what he was all about. And famously, Aristotle, or pardon me, Alexander approached him one day while he was sunbathing in the middle of a, a town square um, after his father had said, you know, you should go seek out this guy. And Alexander asked Diogenes if there was anything that he and his great riches could do for the philosopher. And Di Diogenes famously replied, yes, stand aside, you're blocking my son. Which <laughs> you could imagine someone like Alexander who wasn't used to the, that level of cheek or that level of talk back probably would have been taken aback by it. Probably, would, oh, okay, well, I know the kind of guy I'm dealing with now. Um, so he, he, wasn't, he didn't scare everybody. Um, and then famously, you know, Alexander died in 323 BC at the age of 32, um, which, I mean, wasn't super young at the time, to be completely honest with you. But for someone who was this world-conquering general, general who wept because there were no worlds left to conquer, um, the circumstances around it are odd. I mean, he fell ill after downing an entire bowl of wine at a party, which, again, probably wasn't, you know, abnormal for him <laughs> or for the people at the time. Um, but two weeks after that, he was dead, and the, his that party was kind of the last time he was seen in public. He retreated to his quarters for two weeks and suffered from a massive bout of illness, whatever it was. Um, so some people, um, I mean, his father died in pretty spurious or suspicious circumstances. So a lot of people attribute maybe a similar kind of death to Alexander, um, going so far as to blame, you know, his generals or conspirators and some historians even speculate that aristotle himself might have had connections to the death of alexander um but i think most it's really hard to tell because it's not like you can you know go and do a do a biopsy after the fact now or whatever but a lot of medical experts considering what little documentation they have of um you know the illness itself and what he went through actually suggest that alexander may have died from and probably died from the most significant and most, you know, uh, prolificate of all killers, um, and that's malaria. And then, of course, um, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, as was par for the course in Persia, which is one of the lands that Alexander uh, conquered and took a lot of the customs from, um, his body and his remains were immersed in a massive uh, vat of honey. Uh, in order to stave off decay, I guess they didn't have embalming or anything like that at the time. So to them, the best thing they could do to preserve the body of this 
uh, magnificent and general of all generals um, was to immerse it in just what would have been probably an insane amount of honey. <laughs> and you picture a casket full of honey and what that would look like putting a human being, a dead, you know, the remains of a human being in it. It just it boggles the mind. So, you know, I'm not going to get too in-depth into talking about Alexander. You probably know a lot about him. There's plenty of biographies on him that you can go and read. Um, biographies that talk about his military exploits. But, you know, be be wary of what uh, biography you read, I guess, because, you know, history from the time wasn't, you know, extremely well documented or anything like that. So with any biography you're going to see of Alexander is going to be, um, they're generally going to be based on the same, you know, books or the same set of, um, the same set of limited material. The best one out there to read is the book Alexander the Great by Robin Lane Fox. Robin Lane Fox is a fantastic classical era historian um, who I highly, highly recommend. And although I haven't read this this biography of Alexander by Robin, um, I read the one, uh, The Classical World, which is a documentation of Greek and Roman history that is about as good as it gets. And he is a fantastic um, Oxford-trained historian and professor. So I recommend that book if you're looking to go more in depth on Alexander, because um, I can only really scratch the surface with some anecdotes. So, yeah, interesting guy. Uh, do you know a lot about Alexander, Walter? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I think I've wrote a paper once about uh, at least his father. I wrote a paper about in a uh, university, but uh, yeah, also we discussed Alexander. Of course, he he did have kind of an influence on the the world even after he died. Yeah, just a little bit, huh? Just a little, just bit. A little bit. All right. Uh, anything else you wanted to share this week, buddy, as we wrap it up here? I don't think so. I think that's all I got for this week. Okay, cool. Good stuff. Um, thank you for listening again, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for every week coming back and supporting us and being the, you know, the fantastic uh, Civcast listeners and Civ players that you are. It really, like I like. Voucher and I shared is really validating to see your feedback and to see the positive, if limited impact, small little impact that we're having in your weekly lives. Um, subscribe, email us civcastpodcast at gmail.com. Go to the subreddit, post away on the report back, share new threads, whatever you want to do, make it your community. And remember, rocks in my path, I keep them all because with them I shall build my castle. <laughs>